ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to the Belief Series. I suppose we often think of artists as instinctual, emotional, guided by their muse, waiting for inspiration, trying to let the work flow through them, seeking something perhaps beyond themselves. The truth is more prosaic. Art requires discipline, focus and just putting in the hours until a style and a self emerges. Sean Tan is an extraordinary artist and he so personifies this. Ordered, disciplined and like many artists, a deep thinker about the principles and foundations of his work. Sean makes graphic books beloved by children around the world, but he doesn't see himself as a children's bookmaker. He's the creator of The Arrival, The Lost Thing, The Rabbits, most recently Creature, and a dozen other works. He's won all the book awards around the world. But he's also got an Academy Award for the film of The Lost Thing. Recently, the BBC conducted a poll of authors, publishers and reviewers to determine the 100 top children's books of all time. Sean was on the list twice and the only Australian author to be so honoured. I'd heard him talk, I'd read some of his essays, I knew he was incredibly thoughtful about his work. And I think you can feel that as you gaze at his beautiful, detailed, enigmatic drawings. Hello. Hello. That's a good way to start, isn't it? Just a, <laughs> just a simple greeting. Perhaps because Sean's work is so appreciated by younger readers. Readers? Is that the right term of consumers of graphic work? Viewers? Observers? Anyway, I wonder how much of young Sean was still there. Do you recognise a person from Perth, the kid in Perth? Is, is that person still alive within you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I still feel like the same person. The core feels the same. I guess a lot of the stuff that I do is, is referencing childhood and it's, it's trying to find those links and connections. And also I, I kind of have a sort of respect for things that I felt as a kid. I feel that they were pretty honest and uncompromised and um, I have a lot of respect for kids' opinions for that reason because they kind of – they don't have a vested interest. They're just telling it how it is. So um, they might be a bit wrong but often they're right in a broader sense of how they perceive, particularly on questions of justice and right and wrong. They've just got a good compass that way. So I'm often looking back or referring back to childhood. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking I'm a children's creator but I'm not. I'm, I'm more like a – adult who's interested in childhood perspective and the memory of childhood. Mm. So, yeah, I, I trust it. I trust what kids say and do, mm. even if it's a bit strange and, and scattered. And you also, you continue to do the thing you did as a child. You drew yeah. as a child, you continue to draw. Yes, and I, and I think that's part of it is I trust that action. I trust that almost elemental, preliterate looking. So when you sit down and draw something, to some extent you have to dispel your knowledge of that object and look at it as an, as an experience, like a perceptual experience first and foremost, which everything is, but we forget that because we're too busy interpreting and processing and looking for meaning. You know, as simple as an apple in a bowl on a table, you really start thinking about an apple and a bowl. What is the bowl? You know, where does it come from? There's a lot of time when you're drawing to think about this stuff. So it's a very slow activity. It's like being a almost like being a baby again. Or the other thing I like to think about is that you're a Martian archaeologist and you're just going through and going, what is this artefact, this thing they called an apple, what did they do with it? And you realise the world is much stranger than you think. 
but it is as strange as you remember if you try hard enough to remember what it's like to be young or even when you travel overseas you get that impression it's like a childhood second childhood because everything's so weird and strange so as an artist that's that's really motivating that I love that feeling mm. of we're not in Kansas anymore and it's everything's not what you thought it was but to be a normal functioning adult you can't think that way all the time because you go nuts you have to follow rules of meaning and logic and cast forward and project, look back, interpret. But something is lost in that along the way of all that busyness of, of conceptual thinking and that's the primary experience and the enjoyment of the colour blue, the smell of grass cut or stuff like that because you're too busy doing all that yeah. adult stuff. I was reading a scientist saying something like, kids' questions are the best questions. Why is the world? Why a tree? These are really good questions. And by the time you're about 16, you've stopped asking them. Because we spend so much time socialising ourselves, you know, to figure out how to work with with other people. So, you you, you know, why a tree? Why do dogs sniff? Um, Yes. You know, becomes a stupid question. It's actually still a great question. Scientists ask those questions. I think anyone who's really interested in the world stays interested. They're still asking those questions. I guess art and literature are all about asking those questions and music. Is asking those questions. It's just like, don't forget that this is all still can be new and strange and you can still kind of look at it from a different perspective. Mm. But, yeah, I've got young children and I always thought I would be a, you know, very um, wise parent bestowing <laughs> great knowledge upon them and answering their questions. Half the time they ask a question, it's like, you know what, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it's a very humbling experience. Yeah. Um but then I like to just say to them, well, what, what do you think? And listen to their interpretation. Try not to sort of bombard them with my dad's explanations of everything. <laughs> We've been talking about his work as a painter and illustrator, but it's worth tracking down his writing. He's blogged and at conferences and exhibitions, often delivered provocative and considered essays on his craft, and you'll find many of these online. I was interested in his beliefs about language. Writing for me... I often feel it's, I'd love it to be a flowing river, but it's more like oxy welding. <laughs> I'm joining things together, standing back and realising that's not quite right. Let's, let's put a cog in here to make it turn properly. Yeah. I guess the comparison is with drawing and painting. When I draw and paint, because it's so primary and elemental and you almost have to build your own vocabulary yourself from scratch, which is certain lines and marks and the way they work together and colours, and it's my language. And I don't have to structure it in advance. It just comes out and I, I, I kind of have more like a subconscious intuition of what's going to happen. You know, it's like a little bit of foresight. Language is, is less so and, and that's just, again, it's a lack of experience but also the sense that I am using someone else's vocabulary. These words are not ones that I've developed from primary observation they're mediated so they've when somebody said brush chair table the sounds of those words have been invented by somebody else and i've had to as a child glue them onto those things repetitively until they stick and and then i'm using those handles but someone else built the handles all artists borrow great artists steal is an axiom that i interpret as meaning simply borrowing a technique or approach it's plagiarism stealing it means making it your own but both are the same action. Any artist works with what has been. 
But in your, in your illustration, in your drawing, in your painting, you feel as though you've invented the grammar. It's a mix. Part of it is, is borrowed, like all language, because you can't do anything in a vacuum. You're picking like a magpie. Anything that you like is an influence, so it's, it's all filtering down. But there is a sense there's certain kind of things that are hard to explain. There's certain kind of lines and they've, they've come from the hours spent looking at trees or trying to do a portrait of somebody. There's certain little combinations of shapes that are like my letters and grammar. And those are the things that are, I guess, probably what gives me a style and gives all artists a style that can't be imitated, at least not until AI. Yeah. I, that's another story. <laughs> but, you know, that it's kind of, it's there. And that, that sort of tolls beneath all the melodies of the stuff that you, you pick up, which is ways of composing a picture. Talk about what you believe about originality and creativity. You said there, you know, before it sort of it all flows down. You know, mm. it's all, you're you're picking up bits. All the stuff you like is, of course, filtering through, through mm. and coming out. You've you've got a from what I've from what I was reading. It's like you've got a, an interesting take that's not like a bleak postmodern take on the fact mm. that everything is borrowed. It's 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 kind of it's more composted, so it's not <laughs> like. So there is something wonderful and natural happening that's a little bit beyond explanation. I, but, yeah, I, I sort of think about uh, the best kind of borrowing happens when you're not thinking about it. If, you, if you're actually consciously doing it, it's not so great. But it's more like you, you're just building up a, a nice soil and then you grow something from that soil. Mm. And that thing that you grow... Ideally, the seed is is something deep inside you that's hard to explain and that's emotional and it's it's also borrowed, I think, but it's more subconscious. So it's not something you've calculated and it's planted in there. And then the compost helps it grow. The compost is all the experience, the language, the culture, the processes that you learn and method and mm. you, you might drive a stake into the ground and tie the sapling up and that's sort of all the mm. safety things that you use to, to get things growing. And you have to prune it. That's the editing and all that restraint that you've learnt. Yeah. Um, the ability to communicate with others and the tree once it's grown, that's still not done because you're really wanting the fruit. That's the thing you want. You're trying to get, and then that's a whole process of cross pollinating. Exa- you have not exhausted the gardening metaphor yet. <laughs> that's right. They'll keep we're going. We're about to cross pollinate. Keep going. <laughs> so then you need bees, and you've got to get a hive. And yeah. <laughs> well, I've, okay. started, I've started to formulate a phrase. You know, like all all artists borrow, great artists steal. But Sean Tan composts. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. So I'm I'm kind of aware that once I stop trying to be original. I, I think I started to be more original. Ironically, I think when I was younger, I remember, and all the young illustrators always ask me about this, you know, how do I create my style? Like there's some special thing that's going to hook people's attention and they'll be known for. And I was like that too. I was like, well, what's my style? And, and then I got to a point where I started realising it's like saying, what personality should I have? And only a psychopath would think that way. It's a terrible thing to say, what, what's my personality and start to craft it. Yeah. But you do do that when you're young, don't you? You, ta- you do, you take, yeah. You take on costume and hairstyle and, yes. and, and bands or whatever it might be. Yeah, I'm one of these people. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm for sure. And we're, I think even now you still do it. You, you're picking up stuff and you're trying it on. And I think that's important. But what's happening is you try stuff, some fits – and, and some doesn't, um, and you learn it's, it feels some feels sincere and some doesn't. So some sincerely sticks, and it feels like yeah, there's something in that that's right. And then your identity starts to it doesn't build because it was already there. It just sort of evolves and changes. Mm-hmm. And 
The other metaphor that I often think about, this is when I'm working, is a train station, you know, when it comes to style. Because over the years I have borrowed lots of different styles. I see a certain kind of political cartooning or fashion design or impressionist painting and I'll say, I want to try that. I love it so much I want to try it, so I'll try it. Mm. And each one is like a train passing through a station and I'm the station and a few passengers get off or something is left behind and that's the bit that I keep. But the rest of the train often, you know, you lose interest in it or you realise that's not or I don't fully understand that style. And a lot of artists, young artists, make this mistake of thinking I need to find the right train to get on. Right. And it's like, no, you need you need to be the train station and you've got to get lots of trains running through you. You try all those trains but you're the station. Yeah. That's you're, you're grounded and you're not changing or moving but you're absorbing all this, this different stuff. Yeah. Let me check I've got this right. Get the right compost, seed and soil and you can grow a train station. How surprising that he's a highly visual speaker. We continued to talk about influence and borrowing. I wondered if a new artist today, he believed it might be much harder for them. There's too much film, painting, television, social media imageries. Maybe you drown now. Does he believe there's just too much? Kind of. I mean, I feel overwhelmed. I don't know about other people. Growing up in suburban Western Australia, I kind of felt there was too little. Well, I remember seeing you on TV, so there's an interesting connection there. But yeah. that was important for me to have those shows because there wasn't much audiovisual stuff. There was nothing on demand. Um, you had to wait for things to come on. It kind of led me to do more drawing and painting. So I, I sometimes wonder, did that boredom help me to be more of an artist and to create my own stuff? Because mm. I can see with my own kids the screen culture it's so wonderful. I, I think it's great. And the quality of the shows that they're watching is is great. You know, some of the animated series is like really top-notch writing and everything. Mm. But it, it feels, like you say, nothing wrong with the quality. It's actually better, but it's too much. And there's less time to do your mm. own reflective thinking. And, you know, because I work in children's literature, I talk a lot with teachers and librarians, and it's always this thing of trying to get kids to read. It's this constant concern. And um, that's difficult because I know I wasn't an, I wasn't quick to reading myself. It was something I almost had to discipline myself to learn to read and write and and to really focus. And if if there'd been better computer games and TV, I'm not sure I would have done it. To be honest, <laughs> you may not have done it. But people like this theory, don't they? That that the boredom of yesteryear mm. was a great fillip to creativity. And yeah, I, I don't know if it is or well, not. I'm, you know, I'm sort of like, well, where's all the artists then? You know, like there's no, yeah. there wasn't some great outpouring of creativity because yes. of this, this this boredom. And, yeah. my, and my my own memory of the boredom of of Sundays in country Victoria and all this sort of stuff was it was crushing. Yes, like it wasn't yeah. particularly inspiring. It was this sort of like, oh, when will this day end? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yes, quite unstimulating. Mm. That's true. I have both of those impressions. Yeah. I have this impression of there's nothing on. I better go and draw. And also there's nothing on. Life is life is terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm so too depressed to draw. Yeah, that's right. That's right. When um, will monkey magic be back on? That's right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You God, know. why can't we just stream these episodes yes. through some kind of data network? <laughs> that was a device that just downloaded them all, all, all the time. This is a common belief today. Children should follow their passions and their dreams. We we all should. If what you're doing is not what you love and you're not living your best life, stop it. Go follow your dreams. Sean has. Does he think we all should? I think it makes it easier to do the work and the study for sure. I've certainly seen people who've been 
who've not followed their passions and done what they thought they should be doing rather than what they really wanted. And they can be successful, but sooner or later I notice they have some kind of midlife crisis where they, I'm talking about people I know who are in the arts who mm. sort of say had a career mm. in economics and then, or law or something, and then they suddenly have that backswing. So like, this is, this is what feels right to me. You know, when that doesn't quite cut it anymore, I certainly don't feel like I'm going to work when I go to work, you yeah. know. And, and when I study something to do with art, I don't feel like I'm studying, but I've certainly felt when I've been doing things like, say, history and philosophy, which I studied, and they weren't quite right for me, um, but I found them interesting and stimulating, but in my heart didn't feel like that was my calling. Mm-hmm. It felt like hard work. And, yeah, I, I have no problem with motivation when it comes to writing and drawing right. and painting. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the main thing. I think the following the passion, keeping in mind people have lots of different passions mm. and, and I could have a passion I don't know about, Yeah. like for abseiling or something. I've never tried it, so I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I could, I could get well, really- Because I also think following your passions may, it doesn't mean it's got to be a profession. You might, yeah, that's you right. You might follow your passion and your passion is fishing or football yeah. and you know you're not going to build a life as a professional fisherman or footballer, but yes. you're going to build a life around doing it as much as you can and having yeah, it as yeah. a part of your life. Yeah. That can also be following your passion. Yeah. I mean, there's also a case to be made for not turning your passion into a profession. That's true too. Because that can destroy it. Yeah. And there's been times when I've thought, you know, going back to the gardening thing, I'd, I wouldn't mind being a gardener mm. and then just painting for some purpose that's not in any way commercial and is entirely, you know, pure if there mm. is such a thing. But just for, the, just for that, mm. that would be quite nice to do. I'm somewhere on a spectrum. I'm not. I'm not pure in that sense of just doing it for its own sake, but I'm also not slavishly doing it just for money or career or anything mm. like that. You don't have another body of work. There's not this body of, of Sean Tan works that we won't see for another 20 years. There's nothing that I, I don't show. Um, there is a body of work uh, that I do for myself, which are little landscape paintings, but I still put them on my website because I think they're interesting and I – I don't know. I, I don't know if there are people who really don't share stuff. I kind of feel like if I like it, it's worth sharing. Um, some stuff in my sketchbooks is just plain embarrassing. I'll never share it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's potentially offensive. Yeah. I'm not going to share that. But if it's something... You don't need to see my duds. Yeah. <laughs> if it's something I like, then I'll, I'll just I'll exhibit it. And I've, I've, I used to do those um, just for myself, but in... Recent years, I noticed people were so interested in them that I had an exhibition and started selling them. Mm. And I did notice then I would be starting to do them. And in the back of my mind, there'd be this little thing about, oh, this could be good for an exhibition. I didn't like that. Right. So I've kind of gone back to, and I know other artists do this, they'll start to um, like this cartoonist, Chris, where he does these amazing sketchbooks. And then he started publishing them and they were very fascinating and, and successful. So he had to stop doing sketchbooks <laughs> because in the back of his mind, it's like, yeah. oh, this might. Yeah. It worked when he didn't believe it would ever be published. So instead he writes diaries because he knows nobody would want to publish this stuff. So everybody's looking for, I think, a mix of public and safe space. I think all artists need to have that. That's uh, This is what I say to young artists too because they want this in such a rush to put themselves out there and, yeah, they just try really hard and, and want to – now with Instagram, like I'm not sure how I would have gone with that. I maybe would have used it too much. Yeah. 
the everything you do, you yeah. should show. I don't. And think, I better get something out every day because that's yeah, what I'm going to build. And, exactly, you know, and yeah, I, yeah. that whole seeing numbers and yeah. it's better when you don't know. Yeah. You know, and that's again back at that sort of is it too much? You know, like it's because of the pressure on a young performer of any kind mm. to get stuff out there. That can be too much. You don't get yeah. to just germinate for a while and, yeah. you know, your band only has 30 people coming to see it for a year. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very testing, a very testing experience that's useful mm. is the lack of success. Yeah. I think it's important. Yeah, failure and yeah. you put something out there and it falls flat. And then there's this question of do you continue with that or do you seek approval? Mm. And Well, that's when you find out whether you're artist, isn't it? You know, I think so. It fails but I have to keep doing it, they're artist decisions. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Do you believe that there's some artists in whatever field, writing, music, visual art, that get all this when they're 21? I know that I'm way better now than I Mm -hmm. ever was then. And it's really just because I realise things similar to what you're saying that I just didn't get when I was a brash idiot of 24. It's that thing, the older you get and the more educated you become, the more you realise you, the less you know that you actually don't know much at all. When you're young, you kind of need that hubris though, don't yeah. you? You need to sort of, otherwise you wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't do bold anything, things no. and take risks. And that's the one thing I notice about getting old is I, I worry sometimes that I might, because when I see my kids draw and they're little and they're just free, this is how you're meant to draw. It's just like, I'm doing this now and it's like this and, oh, wait a minute, no, it's not, it's this. And, and then I'll try and draw with them and I feel so stilted. <laughs> it's terrible, you know. It's like the weight of, like I'm going to work. And that sense of, of not putting a foot wrong, doing the dance properly, and they're just going nuts on the paper. Yeah. And I kind of I miss that a bit. I think it's just trying to maintain the balance and, and yeah. keep all yeah. those things happening. What's your, uh, what's your spiritual belief? Is there a spiritual belief at all, an other, an afterlife, anything like that? Not really. I, I think a lot about what other people believe, and I'm fascinated by that, especially in this age. And the strange things people believe when all that excess of knowledge is available mm. and still people choose to believe strange things. Um, and then I was thinking about myself and I, I guess um, when I was younger, I probably had stronger beliefs in things. And now I, there's this residual strength to those beliefs. Like I believe in science, I believe in logic and observation. And I think uh, – the little bit of philosophy that I studied has been very helpful in, in checking my cognitive fallacies that I, you know, I, I love that they give names to all the errors mm. that of thinking that happen. And you see it in the media all the time. It's like, you know, yeah. and it's great to be able to identify what's going wrong. I usually have to look it up. Solipsistic. Am I being yeah. solipsistic? What is that one again? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm always struggling for the term. What's that term? <laughs> Sunk cost. <Yeah. laughs> so I'm, I'm very self-doubting. I think that's if I had one strong belief, it's to always have doubt. Where I see danger is where I see people with absolute rock solid conviction, and this that's a little bit scary. And you'll see that in, you know, very political extreme people on both sides. It seems to be way more on the right, but I see it on both sides, and it's scary because the question I always put to them is, what would it take to make you change your mind? And the answer is often nothing. And I think if you've gone into that kind of cul-de-sac, there's no hope. Mm-hmm. There should always be something that could make you change your mind. So I'm not, I'm not religious. I don't believe in a higher power, but I'm open to the possibility that I'm not stupid enough to say that doesn't exist. God can't exist. Seems a bit like a made-up human thing. Like I think orcas would have something to say about right. our religion. <laughs> that would be quite surprising. Yeah. 
that's my underlying doubt is that one species, one voice and one planet that we know of, what are the chances that it's right, especially looking historically at thousands of religions over potentially millions of years, mm. um, including religions that animals may have. I mean, who knows? Yeah. We're not challenged very much. Yeah. Do yeah. dogs believe in dog? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, everything's a bit yeah, yeah, backwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's right. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've spent a lot of years trying to figure out how to be a sort of dogmatic, doubtful broadcaster. Oh yeah, you know, like the opposite of a if if, if the shock jocks and the, the right wing guys, they, yeah, they can they can dominate a medium because they're so positive and confident. Yeah, yeah. confidence. Oh, does, it's very appealing. It's really appealing and it's yeah. fantastic. I, I'll tell you what's wrong with it with with this city. This city needs and people mm. go, great. He's absolutely right to stand up and go. Cities are complex, man. You know, like there's all sorts of <laughs> yeah. different needs going on. You yeah, know, like yeah. who knows? Yes, that's that's not. It doesn't do the same thing. That's right. The history of thinking is that that doubt wins out in the end, you know, it, it, mm. but it's a constant tide of incorrect conviction. You know, the history of science is fascinating that way and within science itself. Yeah. Um, so often there's this thing of, oh, science is more in line, but the scientists can be just, you look at the history of science, yeah. so much ego, so much nonsense yeah. um, and just human shenanigans getting in the way of yeah. truth. I think the problem is a lot of the truth is, is, is hard you know, when if we're going to – this is a good question for everybody. It's a bit like in The Matrix, you know, where he gives two pills. Well, do you want this comfortable world that you know or do you want to take this pill and take a risk that there's going to be something that you really don't like, like climate change and mm. things like that? And um, most of us, including myself, have this tendency to just reach for the comfortable pill. Yeah. So I'll take that one and I'll, I'll take that later. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just I'm leave not it there. Rejecting yeah. <laughs> leave it on the table. Neo, leave that. I'll leave that. <laughs> so yeah, um, you know, my my story, the lost thing, which is the the first book that I wrote and illustrated, and it's still kind of I feel maybe my most important one is all about that. It's about if something comes along that challenges your view of the world, how do you deal with it? And my response is, well, I kind of entertain it, but ultimately, I'm I'm I have trouble committing. I want someone to look after that view mm. um, and I want it to do well and, and to still be there. I want to know it's there, but I'm not sure if I, I want to. I, the inconvenience of it, in this case, a large, big, red, tentacled creature that just pops up in your home. Not sure I really want it. I'm kind of busy at the moment. You yeah. know, I've got a lot on. Can I deal with that later? And I think a lot of us are a bit like that, myself included. I feel that I'm... I'm missing something critical all the time. And that could be, you know, the existence of a higher power or, mm. or whatever. Mm. I suspect it's something nobody's ever thought of. You know, that, that's if, the, if I've got a religion, it's this, this religion out there. Yeah. We haven't even can recognized I, it yet. Can I say that's the most egotistical thing I've heard so far? I'm missing something, but it'll only be something no one's ever thought yeah. of. <laughs> well, including me. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you all. <laughs> Sean is an artist with meticulous technique developed over years. Will artificial intelligence, AI, make him redundant? It affects visual artists quite a bit. So it's kind of something that we're all talking about. And I think we spend a lot of time looking and not much time seeing. This has kind of been the mantra of maybe every generation ever, you know, to a younger generation is you're looking but you're not seeing. Mm -hmm. And seeing is something that comes from within and it takes a lot of time. And it's about 
freeing yourself of a certain amount of distraction and and studying it doesn't even matter what it is it could be a, a video game or something but just to see it to study it and to think about it imaginatively and does ai worry you that'll get in the way of seeing a little bit it's it could diminish our attention because i see some impressive imagery but it's pretty shallow and that's not my concern it's my concern is that our expectations not rise but lower to meet that shallowness Um, and you see it sort of with cinema to some extent and not so much with with literature and illustration I almost feel that that's getting better and more challenging but we kind of are being trained by this stuff rather than the other way around like that we are not training AI it's train it'll train us to look at things in a way which have less complexity or less emotional import or something, it could work the other way. It might actually help bolster our appreciation of human qualities. Mm. It's always good to have these things challenged, like what is creativity and so on. For so many years we've thought it's sacrosanct and protected, you know. Mm. My job's okay because, Yeah, that's right. Nobody else can – no one else can think up a a lost thing. Yeah, Um, no one else can broadcast and and interview other people. But but all I am is a bunch of data that you could feed into something and out I I could come. The scariest (laughs) thing is I've always thought that I'm some – that I'm like an AI program. Yeah, I'm right. aware of my algorithms, you know. <laughs> if you really focus on what yeah. you do, you become – and to get good at something, you have to study yeah, your yeah. own algorithm. Yeah. And, and you know, we're talking about influences and creativity and all that sort of stuff. And I see it as a, as a process and it's, it's a repeatable process and mm. it can be emulated. I made that comparison with previous technological eras. People feared the printing press, the cotton mill, radio and television, and at the point of introduction made dire predictions about the future of humanity. Is it the same with AI? We're full of fear and uncertainty now. In a generation, we'll wonder what we were so worried about. Sean has a wry thoughtfulness that's fully engaging. If you haven't seen his work, look him up, get to the library and you'll be immediately hooked. Next week, meet Amna Kara Hassan. A Muslim of Lebanese descent, only 10 years or so ago she founded the Auburn Giants Australian Football Club and set out to form a woman's team. But she's also a leader in her community, has worked with Australian Federal Police, is passionate, insightful and hilarious. The Belief Series is written and produced by me, Chloe McKenzie and Grant Walter. Original music, Roy Valentine. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Hi there, I'm Virginia Trioli, host of You Don't Know Me, the podcast in which I ask some of Australia's best-known names seven big questions. Together, we'll get to know guests like Tim Minchin, Kate Zebrano, Ernie Dingo and many more. My guilty pleasure is probably cutting down trees and burning them. I love an open fire and I love my chainsaw. So follow You Don't Know Me now on the ABC Listen app so you don't miss a thing.